I wonder if you all have ever seen the TV show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I, I recognize that it's pretty dated now, uh, but for those who have, who have not heard of it, it's a game show. It's a game show in which there's a, there's a host sitting in a chair, he's got a screen with some questions in front of him, and then there's a, a contestant on the show sitting just there across from him. They're surrounded by a studio audience, there's a lot of production value, there's lights, there's music, it's all very dramatic. And as the multiple questions get harder in the game show, the, the contestant is able to win more money, depending on whether or not he or she knows the correct answer. But if they guess the question and get it wrong, well, then they could lose the money that they had made up to that point. Well, in this game, there are three lifelines. So if they get stuck, if they need help, they can use a lifeline. There's, the first one is the ask the audience lifeline. So they're able to poll the audience, and everybody has a little device, and they'll ask everybody in the audience what they think the right answer is. And so the contestant then might be able to lean on the wisdom of the plurality of the people out there. But then there's also one that's called the 50-50 lifeline. So it it removes two of the incorrect answers, narrowing it down just to two two answers. And then there's the one that's the phone a friend option. That's the last lifeline that people really genuinely uh, enjoy. They will call someone that they have uh, put on a pre-approved list in the show and they'll call them and they'll read the question and then they'll read the four possible answers to this friend and then the friend has the opportunity within a 30 second window here, very stressful, to be able to provide the correct answer. And if he doesn't know the answer to the trivia question, well, you're, you're up a creek to some degree. There was one episode where a guy won the million dollars. Uh, perhaps you've even seen clips of this episode. They got to the final question, and he said that he wanted to use his phone-a-friend. And so there's so much tension in the room. It's very rare that somebody gets that high up into the, the game where they're so close to the million dollars. It's his last question, and he's like, I need to call a friend. And they said, all right, who do you want to talk to? And he said, I want to call my dad. And so everybody's thinking, man, if his dad doesn't know the answer, it's going to be so sad. It's going to be so frustrating. Like, his dad's going to be blamed for it. Well, Regis, the host, calls up this contestant's dad. But instead of reading the question, the contestant was just like, hey, dad, I just wanted to say hi. I don't really need your help. I know the answer to this last question. I'm going to win the million dollars. I just wanted to call and let you know. Everybody in the studio went nuts. They're like, oh, he gave the right answer, and he won that million dollars. Well, under normal circumstances, contestants call because they do need help. But you need a bit of humility to admit that you need help, don't you? Uh, Israel was encouraged over and over again in the Old Testament to call out for God for help. Genesis 4 is the very first time that we find that phrase, that they begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And then, of course, in the book of Exodus, Israel called out to God for redemption. During their internal strife in the book of Judges, They were invited to call out to God, and they would be delivered. During their exile, the prophets told them, hey, call out to God, and they would be graciously restored to the land. There were plenty of obvious opportunities to call out to the Lord for physical deliverance from suffering, but it seems that many within Israel didn't realize that they needed to call out to God for spiritual deliverance from sin, death, and the devil. They tried to obey the law perfectly, They tried to establish their own righteousness rather than, the text tells us, submitting to God's righteousness. They didn't call God on a phone a friend. 
rather than realizing that they didn't have what it takes to call out God, to God for salvation, they, they sought to do it on their own efforts. They wanted to establish their own righteousness. And as the end of Romans 9 points out to us, they did not succeed in that effort. In this morning's passage, as Paul continues to work through the relationship between Israel and the church, the, the relationship between the law and the gospel, we learn the big idea is that salvation comes through faith in the resurrected Lord's righteousness. Salvation comes through faith in the resurrected Lord's righteousness. I've got three main points. First, it's ignorant to try to establish your own righteousness. Second, salvation comes through faith in the righteous resurrected Lord. And then third, we must call out to God in response to his calling. Let's pray before we dive into this. Father, we call out to you as your redeemed people, uh, these people whom you have called together as your saints in this particular location. We call out to you for help. We need the work of your Holy Spirit to renew our minds, enlighten us to your word. Father, give us humility to, to not think that we have it all figured out already and that we have nothing to learn. Father, you, you call us to, to trust you, and so we, we ask for your help this morning to grant what it is that you require from us. We love you. We'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, it's ignorant to try to establish your own righteousness. This, I believe, is what we're, we're taught in verses 1 through 3, point 1. It's ignorant to try to establish your own righteousness. Let me just read those verses back into our hearing. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is that they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So those verses of what Paul is communicating here reminds us a lot of what happened at the beginning of Romans 9, doesn't it? Paul there was expressing his concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. That's who he's talking about in verse 1 of chapter 10 here. He's speaking of Israel and their unbelief. He's lamenting the fact that so many of them within Israel are not embracing the gospel. He desired their salvation and he prayed to God for that salvation. Just a quick note here. Paul's prayer for his fellow Israelites to be saved is not at odds with the high view of God's sovereignty that he just previously laid out in chapter 9. Paul apparently doesn't see any conflict between saying he has mercy, God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, this 9.18 in Romans, and what he says here, I pray to God that they might be saved, this is verse 1 of chapter 10. So just note that Paul doesn't think, oh, God's going to save whoever he wants to save, and so really it doesn't matter what happens. He doesn't need to use any means to accomplish his goals. No, a high view of God's sovereignty and election should not be a barrier that keeps us from praying for the salvation of others. Actually, if you really think carefully about it, God's sovereignty and salvation is the very basis of our prayers for others. The fact that God is sovereign is what pushes us to pray. I think we, I think we recognize this intuitively. J.I. Packer points this out in his helpful book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says when you're praying for someone, when you're praying for someone's salvation, 
You are humbly leaning into God's mighty power. You're asking that he sovereignly open their eyes. You are asking that he soften their hearts. You are asking that he give them a desire for the gospel. You're asking that he would sweetly move their will to the point where they would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. This is what we pray for in salvation of others, isn't it? Sometimes we think, why should I pray if God is sovereign? But the better question is, why would we pray if he wasn't sovereign? And so Paul prays, knowing that God is able to save anyone who calls on his name. But he was particularly concerned about Israel here in these verses. So many of them stumbled over Jesus. They did not accept him as that promised Messiah. It was inexplicable in one sense. They had all these benefits. Israel had access to the true God that no other nation had. They were God's adopted people. They had all the covenants. They had the sacrificial system. They had the promises, and they had the law. God gave Israel his law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had other laws, too. They had moral laws, social laws, food laws, ceremonial laws, purity laws. And through these laws, God was showing them how to live as a holy and righteous people. But the law wasn't actually able to cause the, in, the Israelites to be able to be perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient to that law. That wasn't the power that they needed. This is true for you and me too. Knowing what is right and wrong is not enough to ensure that we always choose the right or that we always turn away from the wrong. You and I know this experience well, don't we? We might know that we were created to love and to enjoy God. We might know that we're not called to lust. We're not called to hate. We know that we should read the Bible. We know that we should pray more. But we struggle to do what's right, don't we? We struggle to avoid what's wrong. Even if we work up the energy, even if we get the zeal to double down on our efforts, we cannot do everything that we ought to do. We cannot avoid everything that we ought to avoid. There is no way to positively build a righteousness that would allow us to stand before a perfect and holy God. Maybe you're not from a religious background uh, here this morning. Perhaps you're a guest of a friend or a family member, and you don't really care about what God's law has to say. And so if you think, maybe I've avoided the problem. I don't know what it is, and I don't care what it is. But I want to suggest that you have the same problem. This phenomenon of failing to live up to a standard is something that you have experienced as well. You know that you don't fully live up to your own conscience. You have expectations for yourself. You probably have your own laws that you think would lead to a flourishing life for yourself. You want to go to bed at an earlier hour. You want to eat better. You want to go outdoors into nature more. You want to touch grass. You want to love your fellow men. And yet... You stay up late, you make bad choices with your food, you spend your free time binging Netflix, and you hold grudges against some of the people that you're supposed to love the most. What's up with that? Well, it makes a lot of sense, actually, from the Christian view. Since the fall of mankind into sin, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. We consistently break God's law in our thoughts, with our words, and through our deeds. Our mouths and our hearts, in that sense, then, are corrupted by our sinful nature. 
but bless our ignorant hearts, we still try to achieve our own righteousness, don't we? We want others to think of us as being unblemished, or perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly upright, good. But Paul has already pointed out early in his letter in chapter 3, something that we already know from experience, that none is righteous. No, not one. So your problem and mine isn't that we're not trying hard enough to obey God's law. The problem is that it's impossible to establish our own righteousness through the law. So Israel's problem wasn't a lack of effort. They had zeal, according to Paul. They were enthusiastic about their efforts. Their problem was that they were too short-sighted to see that the law was meant in part to help them recognize their inability to keep it so that they would phone a friend and call out to God for salvation. It's helpful to recall that Paul himself was pretty adamantly opposed to the gospel. I think that's an understatement, isn't it? Before his conversion, he stood by approvingly as the first Christian martyr named Stephen was stoned to death. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives this big, long speech recounting the history of Israel. And as he's unfolding the history of Israel, he's connecting it with Jesus, this promised Messiah. He says that the person and work of Jesus Christ was actually the fulfillment of every bit of all of God's promises to Israel. And here is how he wrapped up his speech in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 54. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received as the law, uh, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. The Jewish leader's outrage and anger was a result of their being zealous. And if we're being generous, we would say that their zealousness was tied to wanting to defend God's character. They wanted to defend God's law and his promises. They were zealous for what was perhaps a good thing, though misguided. But the horrifying irony of the situation in the crucifixion is that they betrayed and murdered the Messiah who was the very point of the law and God's promises. They subverted the law in order to defend their own righteousness by rejecting the righteous one. They stumbled over the stumbling block. They rejected the one whom they should have been expecting. They were zealous, which isn't always a bad thing. But when zeal is married to ignorance, it breeds confusion and anger and outrage and even violence. In Philippians 3, Paul says that he was a devout Jew. He says that he was zealous, in fact, as a Jew. He says he himself persecuted the Christian church as a result of his zealousness. And we get to see what that looks like in Acts chapter 8. It says Paul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house of the Christian, dragging off men and women, having them sent to prison. So this is Paul's own story. The guy who's written what we were preaching from this morning. 
But when Paul's eyes were divinely, graciously opened by God, he was able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the very culmination of everything Israel was pointing towards. That humility that Paul went through in that experience no doubt motivated his lament for Israel in these verses that we find here. After Paul's conversion, he was the one now who was being persecuted by the Jews. He was stoned. He was left for dead. Crowds were incited to violence against him on account of his proclamation of the gospel. But I want us to notice Paul's heart toward these people who persecuted him. It's not a self-righteous indignation against them. It's not a, a hatred. It's a tender, prayerful concern. It even plays out in how he talks about Israel, his heart towards them, his compassion. He affirms what's good, they have zeal, but then he's willing to correct what's wrong. They don't understand the gospel. They have not, reject, they have not received Christ. Appreciating what is good about them, discriminating what is defective, recognizing that Israel had zeal, but they didn't accept the fact that righteousness that they longed for, that they wanted, that they desired, that they needed, could only come from God as a gift, not from their own zealous efforts to obey the law. I take Paul's posture here in this passage to be instructive for us, you and I as Christians in the public sphere. Some of us, after having embraced the gospel, look at those who are unconverted with anger. We look at those who have been unconverted with grinding our teeth. And we might just try to chalk that up to be like, well, we're just being zealous for God. But if we rightly understand that righteousness comes to us as a gift from God and that it is not a result of our own doing, then we should share Paul's posture here towards those who have not yet embraced Christ as a Messiah. Even those who persecute us for the sake of the gospel. Our salvation is not in our own doing. You and I know this from the word and experience that it's not possible to perfectly obey our conscience, it's not possible to perfectly obey the law. The law condemns us and the law destroys any sort of charade, any house of cards that we might to build up to establish our own righteousness. That humility ought to instruct the way that we speak with and interact with others and it also illustrates something that we need someone else to act on our behalf. And that's who we have in Christ, the righteous resurrected Lord. Point two, salvation comes through faith in the righteous resurrected Lord. We'll see this in verses four through 11. Let's look first just at verse four. Romans 10, four. This verse is the hinge between what has come before it at the end of chapter nine and what will be following this in uh, five through 13. It's a straightforward statement in our English translation but there's some debate about how to rightly understand it. Verse four says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, end in that verse is a good word to use in English for the Greek word behind it, telos, it's helpful, but it's a little ambiguous. What does end mean here? What does it mean to be the end of the law? Does Christ mark the, the termination of the law, like the end of a train track, like? That's the end of the law? Probably not. 
We know that the law is still of use to us, even as Christians. It helps us to know how to please God by our obedience. Okay, well maybe Christ is the completion of the law. Kind of how like any good story ties up all the tension in the end and they live happily ever after. Maybe it's the completion of the law in that sense. That makes sense to me. Maybe Christ is the end uh, in terms of being the goal of the law. As in the end of a political politician's campaign is to be elected. That is the end of his intent. Well, that makes sense too. Now listen, one of my favorite theologians recently uh, released an updated commentary on the book of Romans and changed his view on this between the, the one that he published in the 90s and the one that he just came out with a few years ago. So let's just come at this with a bit of humility. I want to suggest that we should read the passage like this. A, to the believer, Jesus' resurrection marks the goal and completion of the Torah. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So I'll be, I'll be leaning into the verses that follow here to establish the importance of his resurrection. Uh, and just keep in mind that the Torah here is just a word for the Old Testament law. So to everyone who believes, that is from their perspective, Christ is the goal and completion of the Torah or the law. That is, that is the knowledge that Israel lacked. They didn't understand that. And so if the goal, if the aim, if the object of the Torah was righteousness, well then that goal has been met in the righteous one who is able to fully obey the law in a way that no mere human can. And for the one who believes, to the one who believes in Christ's perfect righteousness, the law's thundering yet accurate accusations of our inability to keep it now have been silenced. Those accusations are over. Now, that doesn't mean that the law is terminated. As we've said, the law is still useful as a guide for us to live a life that pleases God with our obedience. But the law's ability to condemn us is over. It has ended. Christ prayed to his father just before his crucifixion, and he said, he said this in John 17. He said, I have completed the work that you gave to me to do completed the work. And then his last words, of course, from the cross, we know as well, where he said, it is finished. Both of those instances there, those words from Jesus' mouth, using the same word that we find here in Romans 10.4. Jesus is the one then who has completed, who has accomplished, who has consummated, who has fulfilled and perfected the Torah. The Gentiles, who weren't seeking after righteousness through the law like Israel, found it. They found righteousness through faith in Christ. That's Romans 9, 30 and 31, just before this passage here. We need to have that verse, 10, 4, clearly understood and able to be like understanding what happened before it, understand what happened before it and after it both. So keep that in mind as we continue to read. And notice B in verses 5 through 7 we should trust in Jesus' finished work, not your own ability. I'll read verses five to seven again. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. It's verses five through seven. All right, so 
Again, Paul's use of Deuteronomy here is kind of confusing. So if, you have, if you've read this twice, thrice, and you're like, I don't think I really fully understand what he's doing here, don't feel bad. You're not alone in that. There are multiple 200-page books written on this aspect of how Paul is using Deuteronomy here in these verses. But I want us to be able to understand this, and so I'm gonna have to ask for a bit of attention, try to help focus uh, even for a little bit here. There's a lot, there's a lot here. Now, some people think that Paul is simply misusing the Old Testament in this passage, that Paul is simply just saying, I'm going to read my own meaning into what wasn't actually there. That's off base for us. That's not an option. Others think he's just kind of riffing on some themes that he finds in Deuteronomy, but he's not really using it to support his argument. Others think he's actually alluding to the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy and sort of laying it out as a way of bringing a connection between the Old and New Covenants. Others think that he's using Deuteronomy 30, that chapter, to show how the law is similar to the gospel in some ways, and the law is different from the gospel in other ways. Now that he's showing the discontinuity and continuity between the Old and New Covenants, between the law and the gospel. That's the majority view, and that's the one that I'm sympathetic to. So notice at the beginning of verse 6, Paul alludes to God's speech, and he goes to Leviticus 18.5, which says this, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Uh, The rules and statutes there, statutes, speaking of the law, of course. So the law requires perfect obedience in order to bring righteousness and life. But we know that until Christ came and since Christ came, no one has ever done that. That's because it's impossible. I'm afraid that sometimes we kind of think about trying to establish our own righteousness as if it was simply a matter of trying harder, or maybe if we get enough reps, then we can finally make it happen. Almost like a dude perfect trick shot. Like if I had enough opportunities, I could throw a football from the top of the Dallas Cowboy Stadium into a basketball hoop at the 50 yard line, I could do that. I know it looks hard, but if I had enough reps, if I had enough opportunities, surely I could make it happen. But that ain't it. Establishing our own righteousness is not improbable, it's impossible. Righteousness based on our our obedience to the law is impossible. Paul has already poured this out for us in chapter three of this book earlier, in verse 20. He said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then Paul alludes to Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy 9.4. He says, do not say in your heart. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. And this is chapter 9 is before they're about to enter into the promised land. And so this is what that verse says. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. So the point being established by Moses here is that God's gift of the promised land to Israel was not a result of Israel's righteousness. And then Paul goes on to chapter 30 very quickly. Moses here in chapter 30 is preaching a a sermon to Israel about how the law has been clearly given by God. And he says this, Deuteronomy 30 verses 12 through 14. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven and for us bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. 
Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So Moses in this sermon to Israel is like, listen guys, you don't need to send a messenger up to heaven to find out what God wants. He's already told you what that is. You don't need to send a messenger across the sea over to distant countries to find out from some guru somewhere what God requires of you. He has already told you what that is. So you can, you can read the word because God has already revealed it to us graciously as a gift. It's clear. It's in your mouth. You can see it. You can read it. It's in your heart. You've memorized it. And yet, despite the clarity of the law, they weren't able to obey the law. Notice again what Paul says in Romans 10. If you have the Bible there in front of you, Romans 10, he says, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. So ascending to heaven and descending into the abyss are impossible things for anyone to do. No human can accomplish these things. But it's not impossible for the Son of God. The Son of God already came from heaven, and he already descended into the abyss, and he came back up from there. Uh, That's, of course, speaking of Jesus' resurrection. He has descended. We read this early in the Apostles' Creed, didn't we? We confess that Jesus went to the place of the dead. This is a controversial aspect of the Apostles' Creed, but I think we see it even here in this text. Jesus, in the crucifixion, took on the penalty of our sin, and he died. And when he died, he died in the same way that you and I died. He died physically, and his spirit went to the place of the dead. He remained dead for three days. His human body goes to the grave. His human soul goes to the place of the dead. This is what we've just confessed together in the Apostles' Creed. But because... He is God, that is, Jesus is the Son of God, didn't stay there, he overcame death. His resurrection is the proof that God has accepted Jesus' death as the payment for our sins. Notice that in Deuteronomy, Moses said, ascending into heaven and going into the abyss. He said, going out across the sea, but Paul switches that. It's not going over across the sea now, it's going into the abyss. Both of those things are Christ's Uh, things that Christ only can do and indeed has done already. So, it seems best to me to understand these verses to be saying that we need to trust in Jesus' finished work, the things that he has accomplished, and not in the things that we are able to accomplish. So, the gospel is not like the law in that perfect obedience to the law is not possible for us. That's something that's not possible for us. But the Son of God assumed flesh, he took on flesh, and he condemned sin in the flesh. This is Romans chapter eight. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But the gospel is like the law in that it is clear and it is near. So let's read verses 8 through 11. C. 2C. True righteousness is not far away. Verses 8 through 11. But what does it say? The word is near you, 
in your mouth and into your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul is connecting Deuteronomy 30 to the gospel here. God's law was near Israel in the same way that the gospel, that is, namely, the word of faith, the gospel, is near to us, you and I, here this morning. Just as the law was clearly explained to Israel so that it could be in their mouths and in their hearts, the gospel now has come so that it can be in our mouths and in our hearts. The gospel can be mysterious, for sure. Uh, We've seen some of the uh, difficult doctrines relating to the gospel in Romans 8 and 9. But we are uh, assured here that we don't need to understand every bit of philosophical speculation that the gospel might entail. What we must confess and believe is laid out actually in pretty shocking simplicity here for us in Romans 10, 9. It's a very simple creed. Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. We affirm historical objective facts. We don't need to understand all of it to benefit from us. I hope that's an encouragement to you. It is to me. In the same way that you don't need to understand nuclear fusion to be able to benefit from the warmth of the sun. We don't need to understand all the mysteries of God's ways with man in salvation to be able to benefit from it. Believe that God worked out your salvation in Christ. And if you rest in him, you will not be cast out. That's the pure simplicity of the gospel. Now, friends, you might be a guest this morning, and maybe you got a flyer in the mailbox. Uh, Maybe you're here just because you were interested in what might be going on here. We're glad to have you with us this morning. I know I can speak on behalf of all of us who are members here that we hope you hear the gospel clearly this morning. This is the message we proclaim at Trinity Bible Church. It is the message that we preach. And if you don't settle in here, that's okay. But if you go looking for another church, be sure that the word of faith is what they are preaching. That's what you're looking for in any good church is that they would preach the gospel first and foremost. That Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Even if we could say what the law was with our mouth, and even if we had a zealous desire to obey that law with our heart, we never could attain the peace that we're looking for. But if we look to Christ, if we recognize that God's righteousness comes to us as a gift, by grace alone, through faith alone, well then the impossible burden of that law crumbles, the pressure drops. So the law, as we've seen from Leviticus 18, the law said, do and live. The gospel here says, believe and live. We don't need to confess our desire to obey the law to be saved. We don't need to confess that, or we do need to confess that Jesus is the resurrected Lord to be saved. This is our hope. This is the assurance of our hope. To confess it with our mouths and to believe it with our hearts. Third and finally, verses 12 through 13 we must call out to God in response to his calling. 
Verses 12 and 13 say this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The one Lord who defeated the grave is the one Lord of all. And everyone who was, has any expectation of salvation, whether Jew or Greek or any other ethnicity, needs to call out on that one Lord alone for salvation. Earlier in this book, in chapter 3, Paul reminded us that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile in that we have all sinned. So we're all in the same bucket in that sense. And now we see the flip side of that sentiment. It's a repetition also of what we found in Romans 1.16, isn't it? That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There's no distinction in that sense. He pours out his riches, and his riches here I think we could understand as being his saving mercy, regardless of someone's ethnicity. This is not bound up in being belonging to Israel or any other nation for that matter. He saves them from shame and condemnation on the day of judgment when they call out to him in faith. At the beginning of this letter, Paul writes to his audience, the church in Rome, and he calls them those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He says they are those who have been loved by, called, loved by God and called to be saints. And then in chapter 8, he says, God works out all things for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Those he predestined are called. Those he called are justified and glorified. God's purpose in election to salvation continues because he is the one who calls. We see this even in chapter 9. He calls people his beloved, both from the Jew and the Gentile. Those who are not his people, now he calls his people. I hope you see the, the repetition throughout the book of Romans that God is initiating this call on his people. There is a general call that y'all are experiencing right now to confess and to believe. That, that, that call goes out to everyone. But there is an effective call that comes to those who will confess and believe. Now listen, we know this from Paul's testimony himself. He heard Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, didn't he? He stood by approvingly when Stephen was stoned to death for proclaiming the same message he's proclaiming now in chapter 10 of Romans. He rejected the gospel. He hated the gospel. It wasn't because he didn't know it. He hated it. He was breathing threats and murder against the followers of Jesus until God knocked him off his high horse on his road to Damascus. God called him in that sense, and he responded. Just as a quick aside, did you notice in the worship services here that the call to worship doesn't come from Kevin? It doesn't come from anybody who's leading the service. The call to worship is a reading of God's word. This is the, the idea that God is the one who is initiating the meeting with his people. He initiates the call. We get to respond to that in singing and in prayer. Well, it's fairly common to hear from Christians, just hearing their testimonies, that they'll acknowledge that there was a point in time where they didn't understand the gospel, they didn't know the gospel until they became a Christian. And then at that point, there was like a light either slowly grew or it flipped on like a light switch. There was some point at which they're like, hey, I understand what the gospel's about now. And it wasn't because they hadn't heard it before. It wasn't because they hadn't heard it before. Many people who grow up in the church who were like, man, I heard the gospel like a thousand times. But it wasn't until this particular point 
Then I was like, oh, that's what the gospel is. That's what Paul experienced. That's the call that I hope and pray is going out here to you. Even though some of you have heard the gospel for years, maybe it's this morning that the gospel truth is coming through to you. That you confess that the gospel is true with your mouth, that you would trust in Jesus with the core of your being, with your heart, trusting in his finished work, resting in that and in that alone. If you have not had that conversion experience, ask the Holy Spirit right now. Answer the call and call back to God. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you clarity. Maybe you've heard this message a thousand times before, but maybe it's never actually sunk in. Like, yeah, I get it, but I don't get it. It doesn't mean anything to me. All you can do for your salvation is to put your trust in Jesus. That we get right with God, not by doing, but by believing. Don't think you need to clean up yourself before you come to Jesus. He didn't come to call the righteous, he tells us himself. That's to get things backwards. Did you notice too in this text, it doesn't say get your act together and then confess and believe. Faith is the instrument by which Christ's atonement might be credited to your account, applied to you. Spurgeon uses an illustration of giving a child an apple. He says, you hold out this apple with a promise to give it to the child if he comes for it. And so just as that child then reaches out in response to obtain that apple, we reach out with the instrument of faith for the perfect salvation of Christ. So in the same way that the the child's hand as he's reaching out doesn't create the apple, the uh, the, the hand as it's reached out doesn't improve the apple in any sense. The hand as it is reaching out is not deserving of the apple. It is coming as a gift. He simply humbly receives it. And so my question is, friends, have you reached out in faith in that sense? Humbly, literally with nothing in your hands and called out to the name of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament and into the New, we have instructions, a command to call out to the Lord. And over and over again, what we see, what that means is that we have to recognize our inability to save ourselves. It's a humble, desperate cry. Do you know the shortest prayer that there is in the gospel or in the the Bible? It's a little trivia. If you ever get on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and somebody asks you what's the shortest prayer, it's the Apostle Peter. After he's gotten out of the boat and he stepped out onto the water, Matthew 14, verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. That's the call. You don't need a phone number. You don't need a special code to get into the Zoom meeting. You don't need to ask Regis to dial up a phone a friend. The gospel is near you right now, and you are obligated to respond. It's been in your mouths. We've put it in your mouths as you've been singing. It's been in your mouths as we've given you the words to confess of the Apostles' Creed. But is it in your heart You might know it, you might say, yeah, it's true, but do you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead? I hope we never think that this is a one and done sort of prayer. 
May we all hold on to that prayer, God save me, for all of our lives. I confess Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, which means all my debt was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. We don't stand in our own ability to perform the law, we stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, just, friends, as Israel had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, they had sincerely held beliefs in their own righteousness that would never deliver on their deepest need. It doesn't matter how hard you believe in yourself. I know that's the gospel that you hear all throughout the week. You were told that the gospel is to believe in yourself. I want to lovingly tell you that it doesn't matter how much you believe in yourself. You will never be enough. And that might sting for a minute. Take a breath. There's no shame in admitting that. There's no shame in confessing that I am not enough. This is actually good news. You don't have to be enough. Submit to the righteousness of God. Stop trying and start believing. Let's pray.